Dear Lord, we are very grateful for your word and we're grateful for the fellowship we have in you. We ask that you bless us in it. Thank you for the food we're going to have. Keep us thinking of you as we look at Galatians, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. Um, The second chapter of Galatians is one of those, it's an intervening chapter between Paul setting things up in chapter 1, getting around to business in chapter 3. He tells the story of what happens uh, with him regarding having his gospel checked out by the apostles. And if you've been through Galatians, and I recommend that you do so, okay, not just read it, but read it again, and not just read it, it's a short book, but you should probably outline it. You maybe even should put it into your own words. It's such an intense book of what the Apostle Paul didn't want to see happen to the Christian church, which happened right on in, in his time period and has happened since all the time in just about every Christian work. But I want you to be thinking about some things regarding it that... Uh, Paul is very big in the first part of Galatians, first chapter. He warns the Galatians that if they preach a gospel, other or anyone preaches a gospel different than what has been preached to them, let them be accursed. He says, even if I came back and said something different, or an angel from God said something different, the difference, the difference has to be stopped. And then he goes on into how he checked what he was preaching. Because remember, Paul was not one of the twelve disciples. Paul was against the Christian church for the first part of his operative ministry, killing Christians, arresting Christians. And then he becomes a Christian on the road to Damascus, and the Lord makes him an apostle. But he has got this ministry to Gentiles. That means you guys. Okay? You guys with that Northern European, you know, smugness, your white privilege, and all that. You needed a special gospel. God needed to die for you. And so he did. And so the gospel is open to the Gentile world. And Paul checks that out with the other apostles, who were Jews of, of, like he was, but had stayed in Jerusalem by and large, and Paul visited them there. And that's what he talks about through the last part of chapter 1. So when we start, it says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up by revelation, and I laid before them, but privately before those who were of repute, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So first he warned them that if any other gospel is preached, let that person be damned. He says, but I want you to know that I, this gospel, our gospel that we believed, I preached, you guys believed it, I checked it out. Lest somehow I should be running or had run in vain. And so I've been doing this all wrong. The point is not having your own, if you're a postmodernist, your own, you know, religious way of doing it. The point is to be right. Because nothing works except what is right. You're just self-deceived or you're, what's the word, uh, 
You've brainwashed yourself into living a certain way because you think, you know, Winnie the Pooh is God or something. He preached something to the Gentiles. They believed it in Galatia. Now, the, the Galatians, if you're unfamiliar, Central Asia, Asia Minor, uh, they had invaded in the 3rd century BC, finally defeated by Attalus of Pergamum. But uh, there's a famous statue. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's from a pediment on, a, um, I think, on the um, uh, temple commemorating the defeat of the Galatians. They were Gauls, you know, like French. They had invaded Asia Minor, and uh, famous sculpture you've ever seen it. It's, a, it's called Dying Gaul, and he's a European-looking guy, uh, lying down halfway. He's got a definite wound inside. He's bleeding out. But it's very, very nice work. You get yourself a copy of it. He's naked. So, not in the church, okay? But you say, oh, not only, a, not only is it Gentiles, but it's really our, our people, our European people. This letter was to a subset of them relocated in Asia Minor called Galatia, and Paul probably visited them in his time that he was sitting around in Tarshish uh, waiting to be called to Antioch. But he preached the gospel to them, and they had been saved by that gospel. So, given you know where Galatians is going, it's the elbows are going to get thrown here. Things are treated a little heavily. It's one of the most combative books that Paul, I mean, he, when he deals with the, the Corinthians, it's like, you guys are such schmucks. The Galatians, it's like, you guys are doing, thinking the wrong thing. You've got to stop this. They, they were almost overly religious, not less religious. But even Titus, verse 3, who was with me was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Okay, so that's a leading comment in the world you're dealing with. That was the key question, whether or not the Gentile Christians were obliged to become Jews to be Christians. So if you were a Gentile and you were not circumcised, they would expect you to go through the ritual of circumcision so you could be fully saved. And Paul saying, yeah, I had a Greek with me named Titus who'd become a Christian. And they didn't compel him to get circumcised. But because of false brethren secretly brought in, so this is where he starts to get a little on edge. He calls them false brethren. Is that really as ecumenical as you want them to be? I, but it matters sometimes you know there are people out there who call anybody we are talking in the library Mike was over last night and we were talking about how heretical we were he's a heretic to me I'm a heretic to him everybody's a heretic to everybody else but we know that heresy the word comes from factiousness when it's used in the scriptures as for a, any brother who is factious among you, have nothing more to do with him. After warning him once or twice. People who create divisions. So you know that the whole idea of heresy doc, is doctrinally insignificant. That's just a fellow traveler to a heresy. You could be entirely right and be a heretic. 
because you're insisting on not allowing believers who are not entirely right into your fellowship. So you know there's a bad way of pushing and shoving. There's a bad place. You know, there was a, the old adage I had heard many years ago during the Jesus People movement. There was a church in Oregon that split over whether you baptized head upstream or head downstream. Now, you might have suddenly developed an opinion about that. Well, head stream, upstream, of course, closer to Jesus. <laughs> you can think of the arguments already. You can say, well, if it's downstream, though, it'd be from his sins picked up out of the water toward Jesus. So you can always split. You guys will be upstream, you'll be downstream, and we'll go through a church split. We know that there are things that cause people all sorts of commotion like Paul is causing or bringing up or treating, but he's right and we're wrong. We want to be sure that we draw the same line, the same place, for the same reason that St. Paul did, because drawing lines matters, right? So that if a person says, well, that's a good example. To know where, say, the line of marriage exists, right? We went to got a license back in the 70s, and we went to a church. A pastor who looked like a penguin married us. And those lines were drawn. I think most of you married people had the same thing happen to you, other than the penguin. But if somebody was teaching that if you shake hands with a girl, you greet her on the street, hello, Betty, shake her hand, you are married. And treats anything that is, well, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, so any touch of a woman becomes essentially having touched her, I am now committed to her for life. Someone draws the line in a different place. You should have the line for where marriage is. You don't say, no line. You don't say, I'm not going to defend marriage. But that doesn't mean I defend all lines. So when you look at St. Paul, you're not being written a blank check for roughing up other Christians for disagreeing with you. False brethren, secretly, brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom. This is a very subjective wording. False, slipped, secret, spy, bondage, that they might bring us into bondage. To spy out the freedom we have. Now, you're beginning to get a sense that Paul's defense of the gospel when he said the gospel, he didn't describe what the gospel was in chapter 1. He assumed that they had what they believed is what they knew to be the gospel. And something was happening to them that they didn't want to have happen. And he wants to tell them the story of what went down and why it went down. 
There are people who want to bring you into bondage, people who do not like the Christian life, the new covenant, lived under love to bring you to the ethical treatment of one another. They want to have the law. They want to make sure, and once they step into the law, oh, there are very good things measured in the law. Very good things. The mind of God, the character of God. And But just like not knowing where the lines are drawn, people say, well, that means all the law. So some Christians go, no, we give up the ceremony law. No, we some give up the religious law. Not the moral law, though. Then they fight over whether the Ten Commandments are the moral law or some of the civil law or religious law. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Do not bear false witness. Sounds more like a civil law. Whatever the case, we're out there drawing lines through the law. We're trying to arrange this correctly. And St. Paul is going to come in with his elbows flying on it. To them, we did not yield submission even for a moment that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who were reputed to be something, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Now that, that phrase is a little... Uh, um, it's, a, it's a little uppity. But you'll see why he's saying it. Because you might actually not stand with the gospel. We all might be tempted not to stand with the gospel because someone more important than you said otherwise. Whether it's in the history of the church, well, C.S. Lewis didn't agree with you. Well, G.K. Chesterton, St. Augustine. But St. Paul said, I said C.S. Lewis. Billy Graham. I don't know, I pull out all the stops. He says, what they are makes no difference to me, but those who are somebody, the somebodies, they didn't add anything. This is not just Paul's idea of the gospel. This is the gospel. He checked it with these people. This is where we should all stand. Those, I say, who were of repute added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for the mission to the circumcised worked through me also for the Gentiles. And when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they would have us remember the poor, the very, which very thing I was eager to do. For those of you who haven't run across Cephas before, that's just Peter. Same, same name, uh, means rock. <clears throat> and uh, he wants to let the people in Galatia know that all the big guys granted this. Remember, back in Acts 11, Peter, Cephas, is reporting his conversion or his preaching to the Roman centurion, Cornelius, and Cornelius' salvation. And it was a great message, the whole two chapters there is a great message of what it means for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And the Christian church in Jerusalem granted that that's what had happened. This is why it's important. 
Because, and I want you to, the reason I bolded and breaded that phrase, when they perceive the grace, too often people who are even correct about the gospel haven't experienced the gospel. They are in a church that believes you're saved by faith alone, and they agree, you are saved by faith alone. They have never exercised faith alone. They have never called on the name of the Lord to be saved. There are people in churches that don't believe in salvation by faith alone. Who do have faith alone in Jesus Christ? This is getting confusing. I was reading a little of Richard Hooker this week, in the whatever, 1500s. And he was, one of his big things was, it's really not the right theology, it's the right lived theology. It's the right, did you do the thing you know is right? And he was willing to have fellowship more broadly than just the English tradition, Protestant tradition, because he said, have they passed from death to life? Can they perceive the grace in the people? When, Paul, when, what's his name? when Peter saw Cornelius speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit falling on them, he said, how can we forbid water to those who have clearly received the Holy Spirit just as we did when we believed? And then the, the leaders in Jerusalem said, when they perceived the grace that was poured out, what was that, how is that phrase? Let me take a look at here. At the, don't want to misquote it. When they heard this, they were silenced, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance unto life. Perceiving the grace. This argument becomes a lot easier when it's not just another denominational fight between people who do things a little differently. You are not just Protestants accidentally who might find that a Greek Orthodox friend, well they believe in Jesus and the Mormon friend, they believe in Jesus and they, you know some you know, pew jumping charismatic, well they believe in Jesus I have no idea, because you think you're bowing and scraping before the preference of your choice regarding Jesus and if you've experienced the grace of God, the forgiveness of sins and life eternal, repentance unto life and you perceive the grace in you, then the argument might still exist because the argument is between Peter and Paul on this. Paul's right. The argument would be a lot easier if the people arguing for the gospel of Jesus Christ have experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means they are loving, they are joyful, they are peaceful, they are patient, they are kind. They're gentle, they're faithful, they're self-controlled. Forgiven of their sins, and they act like they're forgiven of their sins. And so with that gospel preached, when they perceive the grace, and the people in Jerusalem agreed, yes, this is the grace, offered me the right hand of fellowship, all's fixed, right? You had a church council, you had a church meeting, the big wigs came through town, Went and had a you know, power lunch someplace, eyeing each other narrowly. Turns out they all agree. 
everything's solid, and they wrote it up, secretaries had them sign it, notarized it. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. This is, not, this is not back in the, you know, uh, false brethren secretly brought in, slipped in to spy out our freedom. I don't know if you know who he's talking about. In certain circles, mostly Catholic, the first pope. I mean, he's been given the keys of the kingdom, right? You don't get more somebody than Peter. I mean, he, Paul had to meet Jesus in a vision. Peter hung out with him for a few years. Peter was personally blessed, personally elevated. I was talking to somebody, Sharon, during the break about nicknames, and Peter had his nickname given to him by Jesus Christ. Where'd your nickname come from? Somebody mean to you on the playground? Jesus Christ nicknamed Peter. Because on this rock I will build my church, right? I don't know what you view that passage like. But. And here's Paul, you know, being all, you know, Pharisees. I mean, he's a Pharisee background, and he's, you know, maybe a little too argumentative. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now listen to what he then says. And if you would like to develop this ability to have an overreaction, you know, people who overreact, what were we talking about last night? Ab Abby and I and Mike were talking about micromanagement. Gunn was there too. Micromanagers are a, per, you know, a hissing and a byword because no one wants their management. But they think the world needs their management. So we all, you know, throw them down a flight of stairs at the first opportunity. That's the kind of officer in Vietnam that would get fragged. You know what fragging is? The armed soldiers shoot you in the back because they're done with you. Now we know that some of us are going to look at this and go, Paul, why are you such a, you know, Christian peace, come on. Apostle Peter, the first pope, come on. Don't you think you're overreacting? Because any reaction to some people, any reaction to some people is inappropriate because you do not do that. You do not say that again. You do not go there. Because there are so many people running around Christian circles, up and down, you know, streets, heaping calumny on others, excommunicating whole churches. So what do you excommunicate on? What do you draw the line on. Will you toe the line with the Apostle Peter and you say, I'm going to, I don't care what kind of church tradition you have behind you, Peter. You go way back to Jesus and you're still wrong. And you know I'm wrong because you agreed with me. Remember back in verse 9, James, Cephas, and John agreed with him. This, look what happens. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
because there were people on the other side who were drawing lines who would draw a line with Peter outside of it. So fearing to be cut off, no pun intended, by the circumcision party. I was reading Lattimore's translation of this passage this morning, and I liked what he said. He says, and he flinched. You know, just like, oh my gosh. You got all the liberty in the world. You're in your apartment. You have your usual U of I students pyramid of beer cans in the window because you're free in Jesus to have a beer. It doesn't look like you've just had one beer, but you, you have it really. Abused alcohol, but then you find out, you look down the street and there is your grandmother's car coming to visit. You leave the pyramid up, you can take the pyramid down. There are people who would take down the pyramid out of grace and love, say, well, I don't want to annoy her. And some people say, no, this is, Christians are allowed to have a beer. Peter does this at the expense of people, not his own reputation and his little pile of beer cans. He withholds himself from the Gentiles because the uppity Jews were coming up from Jerusalem with tighter standards about what you could fellowship with. He drew back, he flinched, he separated. Remember heresy? It means factiousness. When you try to separate that which the Lord has put together. Now we're called all souls Christian for a reason. Because we don't have a secondary doctrine policy that you have to sign on to. To consider yourself a member of the body here. Anybody could be a, you know, come, love to have them. But to be one with the saints, you have to be one of the saints. You have to be someone who has passed from death to life through the gospel. And I don't care if it's a reformed gospel, a charismatic gospel, the, 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 charism, you know, the Baptist gospel, it doesn't matter. It's this gospel in either case. You talk to reformed brothers, you talk to Baptist brothers, you talk to charismatic brothers, and they talk to you about the gospel. If they believe we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ and not by adherence to the law, You want to be joined with them. We try to have that here. That's why we like to get together for lunch, mostly for the lunch. But, you know, we, we like the fellowship. The separation is the big crime. And with him, the rest of the Jews acted insincerely. So all these Jews in Antioch, looking at Peter going, oh, the big guy, the, the guy who goes back with Jesus all the way. Um, he's not eating with the Gentiles no more. And even Barnabas, Barnabas is Paul's sidekick, the name means son of encouragement. I mean, he's a positive guy. Always, you know, here, let me buy you lunch. You're looking great. Nice new hairstyle. Everybody's encouraged by Barnabas. Barnabas carried away by their insincerity. Paul was opposing him because it was condemnable. This kind of damage is done in the church constantly. People drawing a line that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be right, but they're still drawing a line. They're still saying, 
Now, I don't know if you knew this, but I have the correct view of the end of the world. I, you know, worked it out, satisfactory to everybody who's heard it. Now, I could be entirely right, but most of you, I think, don't agree with me about my view of the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, the end of all things. Do I draw a line here? You shall not come to my... Well, I don't really have many to spare, so I'm not going to be kicking people out. Now, you can really see the nature of my soul if after it, it got to be a large church, I was happy to start kicking people out. I could spare them then. This is the sort of thing that is unacceptable in the church because it, it, it's not that we get to be... He's being brutal to Peter for Peter and the Jews out from Jerusalem and James being brutal to the Gentiles. Who's right? Well, the ones that served the gospel. Peter knew what the gospel was. Peter had the experience in Acts with Cornelius where he was given a vision and he preached the gospel to Cornelius and Cornelius was wonderfully saved and then he reported to the church and it turns out to be all right, but this was a social pressure. He flinched. He realized that people didn't approve. Some of the religious did not approve of the Gentiles. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, just saying it a little bit differently, so you wouldn't upset the Jews from James, not being too welcoming to the Gentiles. I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, because Paul had been living with Peter at that time, you know, in terms of in the same town, functioning in the same ministry. If you live like a Gentile, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You've been set free from the law as a Jew, right? Paul was a very law-abiding Jew. He says, to the law, I was blameless. And he was persecuting the church, part for this very reason. They believed in the grace of God brought about through the death of Christ. He says... And it's kind of a humiliating, because there's really, that's the, 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 we don't know if the quote ends there, but <clears throat> he basically says, hey, in front of all these Jews from James, who hold tighter standards than Peter did, so he's acting insincerely, Paul gets up and says, hey, I don't know if anyone knew this, but Peter lives like a Gentile. How can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? You don't get to be the only one who gets set free. When you think of your own standards you have for others and you've granted yourself a certain freedom, remember that one of the great tests to find out whether or not it's workable is whether you'd extend it to anyone else. Do they get to do the same thing? I like to tell, you know, rat bastard husbands. Not that there are any here. But uh, their view of the U.S. government, taxation is theft. Setting up their own standards, making their own rules. I said, just apply that freedom you have to your children. 
Let me know how it works. Do you believe in you being an absolute monarch by divine right and an elected government cannot even govern you because you can't even grant them anything? It's a check on us. And he's running this check on Peter. You, you were set free by the gospel from the law of the Jews. Why do you want the Jews to commit the law of Moses? We ourselves. Now, this last paragraph is complicated. I set it up a little bit differently. I, I, I bolded and centered this next couple of verses. Now, it doesn't help a lot. But I want you to follow what the thinking is here. We ourselves, who are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners, yet who know, in spite of the fact that we're Jews, we know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith, through faith, in Jesus Christ. Okay, first off, we know that. And then he says it again, but it switches over to the person who has believed it, perceived the grace that had been given. Remember I said it's not a matter you believe this is the way you get saved, but that yes, you have gotten saved this way. It says, we know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. In other words, that it be operative in us. We didn't just believe it doctrinally, we believed it unto operation. And not by works of the law. This is why it's important for you to have the right heart towards believers and not reject believers who believe differently than you is when you have had the experience that you know what's important because you know what changed your life. You've heard my father probably say any number of times, maybe to you, when you told him what you believed, and he said, how is that making you more like the Lord Jesus? Well, you know, an awful lot of theologies don't make you a lot more like the Lord Jesus. The gospel certainly does, if you believed it, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. We went through this. If you went through the gospel as it is preached by Paul, and your life was wonderfully changed, you don't like to see anybody adding anything to that gospel. You know, like when you work for your first paycheck? You go to the bank, cash it, instead of putting it in your savings account because you want to hold all the money. You know what that, that money, money, I remember money. Remember money? We used to use it. Um, you care a lot about money when it is a representation of your labor. And you don't think highly of someone who's counterfeiting money. It looks a lot like the money you have. It isn't the prettiness of the money that makes you want it. It's the, it represents your labor. And this guy's got a printing press in his basement cranking out $100 bills. You go, um, it's not quite the same. When we care about the real, when you actually have worked for money, you care about counterfeit. When you have passed from death to life, when you know what the gospel is, someone who is trying to bring people back into slavery, right? They want to lead us back into bondage, and we don't yield 
submission to them even for a moment. Even someone who just gets, who's clearly saved. Peter was clearly saved. Peter was clearly a leader of the church. He knew the Lord Jesus. He was right on a lot of things. He was wrong here. And yet don't even put up with that because this is so important that it save you. Not that it is a doctrine up against, say, what the LDS church believes is the gospel. It's not just that it's different. This is the Protestant Christian version. It's that it changed you. Check. To be justified, even we who have believed, to be justified not by works of the law. That freedom is something radical. Verse 17. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we ourselves are, were found to be sinners, is Christ then an agent of sin? Certainly not. That's like his passage in Romans where he says, shall we therefore sin that grace may abound? By no means. There are people that would argue, well, if you are set free, remember, this is, later in the book he says, you were called to freedom, my brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The charge by the Jews and the legalists are coming back and saying, well, why, you know, you're just letting people do what they want. Yes. Well, you're making God, Christ, the agent of sin if they go out and sin sometime. Well, they could sin, yeah, but they won't, or they shouldn't, or they wouldn't want to, or they're sorry when they did. When I, when if I, I'm found to be sinner in this state, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, does that make Christ an agent of sin? He says, certainly not. But if I build up, again, those things which I tore down, then I prove myself a transgressor. It's like I make myself a transgressor. The people that go back to the law, it says, if I sinned as a free Christian under grace, I am, I am wrong. It doesn't make Christ an agent of sin because my will and my autonomy picks that up. But if I go ahead and bring the law back into my life, I, all the transgression I make come upon me. To him who thinks it is sin, to him it is sin. If you bring Moses back into your life, I prove myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law. The, the, the reason, looking at what the gospel expression is for the person who's trying to find righteousness, he said, here is Paul who wanted to be righteous. The gospel made him step away from the law to be alive to God. Christianity is righteousness through grace. It's not salvation through grace and then righteousness through the law. This whole book argues against righteousness through the law. And we have to have this mind that we know what our gospel is, we know how important it is, we experience the grace of God in righteousness, and we know that we made the choice that we might live to God. So we don't want the death that is in law. I have been crucified with Christ. This is a great verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
That's so personal. You could perceive the grace that is given to Paul. If you knew the guy, post-Pharisee and brilliant guy, he's talking about, I knew that Christ loved me. I knew that he died for me. I've, I've been crucified with him. I, don't, I just live for him because I wanted to live for God, live for Christ. I'm not about sin. Sin's not something that I'm devoted to. And I want to be sure, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. This whole Christianity thing's a crock or just a, you might say, a different path to take and God decided, well, you know, I think I'll die. So they'll have some choices. No, you don't die to have choices. The other one didn't work. If righteousness were through the law, you'd have no need of grace. Justification were through the law. Christ died to no purpose. Read the rest of the book. It sets up what the Christian, how the Christian should view his ethics, how the Christian should understand their sanctification is through grace as well as and faith as well, not just your salvation. That this is something, you know, I'll make a stand against. If somebody, somebody says, uh, uh, I want to join your church. I say, well, you can't, one, you can't, because there are no members. But if you want to be part of the body of Christ here, you have to be part of Christ. And whatever you say you think that is, We'll decide whether or not we consider that and whether or not the change has been made. You could say the right thing and live the wrong way. You could live the right way and say the wrong thing. We're going to be concerned about that because it's about the gospel. That's why the gospel's posted in the foyer because we care most about that. Keep it in mind. Represent yourself as lovers of the gospel. You'll be in love with every other believer in town in every other church that believes the gospel. You have great Christian unity. And, uh, and we have then have a good time fighting about things we don't agree with. Well, let's thank God. And um, then people can go help set up tables and chairs and the like. So, let's pray. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for Paul's defense of your gospel in your son that has set us free from the law, that has set us on a path of righteousness that we might live to you. We ask that we would be those people ready to... Die on that hill, Lord, and not be the kind of people that die on every other hill. The thing that had changed us, passed us from death to life, we'd ask that we would value it because we have experienced it. In your son's name, amen.